Well, welcome everybody to the second installment of a series we are in together that we are calling Thread the Needle. Over these few weeks, what we are doing is we are leaning into one specific conversation that Jesus had in his life, in his ministry, that quite honestly is very significant. It's not just significant to my eyes, it's significant to the eyes and the hearts of anyone who would personally and completely take a look at what is given to us in the gospel accounts because this interaction between Jesus and a young man who is devoted like we learned in part one is recorded in three of the four gospels and there are very few stories about Jesus recorded in three of the four gospels which would cause us to go hey maybe this one is significant maybe there's some stuff here we need to circle around. Maybe we don't even need to just preach on it for one week, but week after week, layer upon layer, level upon level, we need to dig and dive in order to grasp the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. And so we began this series in part one, looking at this account in the gospel of Mark. We're gonna continue on today by taking a look at this on another level. And specifically on today, if I can tell you where we're gonna go before we get there, we're gonna look at the statement Jesus makes where we lift and draw our series title from, Thread the Needle. My prayer today is in a few moments that the reason and the calling to thread the needle would actually rest in your heart as something that the Spirit of God is calling all of us to do and something that quite honestly we can do. And then we're going to take another look at a uh, overlooked reality of this man that may help us to see him in a slightly different way, but ultimately push us into what God is calling us to and what God is calling us for as we become people who thread the needle. So if you're ready for God's word today, somebody in that chat, just go ahead and type, I'm ready. Those of you listening to the podcast, watching on YouTube, you can pop this in the comments. You can just say it to yourself. I am ready. Now, my wife and I dated, basically the entirety of our dating took place while we were in college. And as college students, we were a very busy, we were also very broke. And so we found that the majority of our dating, certainly in volume, if not like maybe almost all of them but a couple, all of our dates turned out to be study dates, if you know what I'm saying. If you've ever been uh, working and been uh, involved in something, been as, like it can become a lot. And almost all of our dates involved going and getting coffee and studying together. And at the time that we were in college, this was like peak Barnes and Noble, right? Now, some of you don't know what Barnes & Noble is. You a little too young. Barnes & Noble is that closed bookstore. Well, well, when my wife and I were in college, Barnes & Noble was it, okay? Had a little cafe on the side, had all the books everywhere. Like, and it was just a great place to hang out. And so we would go, and many of our dates were going and, and, and studying there and getting some coffee. And, you know, what would happen inevitably when you study is one may get done and the other one still got uh, some work to do. But being at Barnes & Noble, it enabled us to peruse the books, kind of look around because we like books. We like to read. That's just been like a thing for us. And so I can remember one time we were on one of these little coffee dates and we're in Barnes and Noble and I'm walking around and I stumbled across a book that the title caught me. This title was like, huh, what's going on here? Now I'll go ahead and tell you and save you the Amazon purchase now. Don't buy this book, okay? 
because the title is better than the book. I, I, I sat there and sort of did my fast read through and I was like, you ain't saying nothing, but your title is amazing. And the title was called, Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. And it was this uh, emotional and sort of psychological breakdown as to how men and women process things. And the basic premise is this. You could probably pick it up off the title. That's why the title's good. The book is just like, come on, what are you doing? But men seem to be more apt to segment things. Like, I'm going to keep this in this container, that in that container. And, like, I may, I may be mad at you uh, over here, but I'm going I'm to I'm be nice to you over here. Whereas women are more like spaghetti. Everything is all intertwined. I mean, men, most men can uh, compete on a field, compete on a court, and be, be like angry at one another, be calling everything, uh, their opponent everything but a child of God. You know what I'm talking about? Like, just like, like you's wrong, you whatever. But then ultimately be friends afterwards. I remember there was a season in my life where I was playing, uh, I was playing in a lot of rec league uh, basketball, and I was playing in different, different ones in different places, and I... Uh, I was playing a game one night, and my team was playing another team, but the, the other team had a couple of people that I knew pretty well. One of them was the guy I had to guard. Uh, now, I am, uh, I'm pretty tall. I'm six foot four, and, uh, you know, I, I can hold my own. I got, I got weight. I don't get shoved around a lot, but, uh, but uh, every once in a while in these leagues, you would come across somebody who, who was <laughs> on another level from a, from a physical or an athletic um, perspective, and this was the case that night. I was... Uh, I was tasked with guarding this particular night um, a gentleman who played Division I college basketball. In fact, uh, some of you will know the name Bryant Reeves. Okay, this wasn't big country, but this was the power forward who played next to Bryant Reeves at Oklahoma State during that stint. Bryant Reeves, who would go on and play in the NBA, be a part of the Vancouver Grizzlies before they moved to our beloved city of Memphis, like, like that Bryant Reeves. His roommate and the starting power forward on that team that was a very, very good team was, was my task of guarding. My guy was 6'10", and I had to guard him, which is fine. I ain't worried about this, but let me tell you, I gave that dude the business that night. Not, and by the business, I mean not like I was like, like uh, hooping on him type of thing, but I mean like I wasn't about to back down because he had six inches on me. I was going to eat up his space, and after a while, he kind of got tired of it. He got tired of me taking up space, being right up on him, you know, like chest, and like, like I, I, I was there for it. And he caught the ball one time in kind of the low, low block. And he, he was tired of me eating up the space and kind of getting him out of the lane because the ref was letting me kind of move a little bit. That he decided to turn real hard and aggressively with his elbows out to, to make a move towards the basket. And when he turned with his elbows out, him being six foot ten, me being six foot four, his elbow high turning caught me right in the jaw. Knocked me out, out, like not like passed out, but like knocked me to the ground. And I'm a, <laughs> I don't fall to the ground very often. The worst part of the whole thing is the ref caught a foul on me. Now that's a whole nother, that is a whole nother discussion for another day. But uh, I mean, it, it, it was rough, man. I heard there was some blood involved, you know, this kind of stuff. But um, after the game, me and my guy went and ate together. He paid because, man, I was still hurting him out. But like, we went eight together and had fun, and we were still friends. You know why? Because men are like waffles. And women are like spaghetti. It's all intertwined. She can say one bad thing about you in seventh grade, and you ain't never going to trust her again because it's all connected, and it's all intertwined. And this is not in every case, in every space, but it's a, it's a picture this author was trying to give with this 
book and this picture the author gives, yes, they denote to men and to women, but I would contend that people of faith are often waffles or spaghetti. That people often approach their faith in a waffle format or a spaghetti format. What do you mean? I mean that some people, their faith is very segmented. And they're going to allow God to be involved in this container, but not that one. I'm going to let him get involved in this, but not that. And it's very waffled off. And Jesus can touch these areas, but not those areas. Where other people understand that really your faith is a lot more like spaghetti. And my faith touches everything. And it all gets involved. In fact, to say it away, we say that it's all spiritual. Some people view these things and those things as spiritual. There are aspects of my life, some of the decisions I have to make, some of the places I go, some of the things I do are spiritual. Others are are, are just my own business, if you will. Whereas other people realize that everything I have and everything I do and every decision I make is spiritual, that it's all spiritual. I would love for somebody in the chat right now at Church Online just to type the title of today's sermon in the chat because whether you're trying to figure out if you're a waffle or spaghetti, I want to tell you where you need to go. It's all spiritual. The way that our God would love for us to view our lives, the way that he has called us to, the perspective that Jesus is trying to get this young man to take as we explore this together is that it's all spiritual. It's not just those things that you call spiritual. It's not just those things that somebody esteemed to you as to be a big deal. It's all spiritual. And as we take this perspective, I would love for us to read our text again. Although on today we are going to read from the book of Luke. As I mentioned earlier, this same story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's recorded in three of the four Gospels, each with a slightly different emphasis, but it's the same story. So we're going to take a look at it from the book of Luke, chapter 18 today, and read a story that if you join us in part one and you listen to the podcast, might sound familiar to you. Verse 18 of Luke 18 reads this way. It says, once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Peter said, we've left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. Every teacher, 
every speaker, every communicator has their tendencies. They have their cadence. They have their way of doing things. If you listen to a particular communicator over and over and over again, you can tell when they're on their game and when they're off their game. You can tell when they're in their zone and when they're not in their zone because every communicator has their tendencies. And as someone who studies the art of communication in all of its forms, yes, preaching and yes, teaching, but, but also comedians and also those who give uh, meaningful presentations. I'm someone who has been fascinated by communication since I was quite young. It's always uh, amazed me how one person can speak for an hour and you're sitting on the edge of your seat the entirety of the time and another person can speak for five minutes and you're like, oh Lord, please let this person hurry up and put that microphone down. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's uh, the arts of communication. It's amazing to me how one person can stand up in a meeting and nobody really care about what it is they have to say, but another person can have the same microphone in the same room with the same people, have the same amount of time, and everyone is gravitated, hanging on every syllable of every word that they are saying. What is the difference? It's the arts, communication. And so as someone who studies communication, I look at Jesus in what he says and how he says it as a communicator. Because Jesus had tendencies as a communicator as well. He was a master teacher and one of the great things that Jesus would often do is enable the people listening to him to hear and to feel and to sense what he was talking about by drawing on common objects, common places, common things that they would have known off the top of their head. Jesus told one of his most famous stories, a story we know as the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, this is a story. It is a parable. Jesus made it up, if you will. But in making it up, he uses real positions. The, the, the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan. He, he denotes ethnicity and he denotes position within those. He talks about a road going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And people would have known that road and they would have known it as a dangerous road. There would have been all of these thoughts and all of these feelings and all of these assumptions and assertions put on it just by the, by the places and the people that Jesus is talking about. But what Jesus would often do is he would take these common things and show them to do something that they very well could have done, but nobody would have expected it. I mean, when Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan, he, he talks about how the priest passed by and the Levite passed by. But there's this Jewish man beaten up left for dead on the side of the road. And the Jewish audience would have thought, certainly the priest would have helped him. Certainly the, the Levite would have helped him, but they did not. And then it was the Samaritan. There's no way the Samaritan will help. There's no way the Samaritan will be the hero. There's no way the Samaritan will be the one who shows kindness to him. But yet in Jesus' story, he does. Jesus had this pattern. Common objects, unexpected realities, unexpected decisions made with those. He would take mustard seeds and say, you know, you need faith that's this size. They knew the size of a mustard seed. It was common in the market, common everywhere. He understood that it was the smallest, most common seed they had around. And he said, if you have faith even of this size, God can do incredible things through your faith. He took a coin and reminded them that they are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, what has Caesar's image on it. 
but give to God what has God's image on it. He would take fish and talk about their, the, the, use them as an example of the commonality of God providing. He would talk about wineskins, which they were accustomed to, and uh, what you do with new wine and what you do with old wine and how it works. He would use these common objects in common ways, all common. Which leads us to this story and the picture that Jesus gives. A camel threading a needle. Now, it's absurd when you think of it the way you probably think of it. Because you know a camel. You've been to the zoo, right? You've seen how large a camel is. Jesus chose a camel because a camel to those people was the largest animal they would have had understanding of and commonly seen. He wasn't going to talk about something they ain't never seen. Talk about some polar bear. Man, they in the Middle East. They don't know nothing about no polar bear. Jesus didn't do this. He said a camel. We may say, uh, if Jesus was telling this story today, it would be like an elephant trying to go through. The eye of a needle. Now, when we think of it, often we think of a sewing needle, right? And how difficult it is even to take a piece of string and thread it through that tiny opening. Even people who are good at sewing, the little seamstresses among us, the seamstressers, is that what you like, among us, like, like being able to thread the needle is difficult even with that. There is absolutely no way a camel can go through the eye of a sewing needle. This is the picture and therefore the interpretation that many people take when they view Jesus's teaching here. The issue with this interpretation, please listen, is that it abdicates personal responsibility that Jesus doesn't abdicate. He tells the guy who is trusting in his riches to go sell everything and follow him. He does not tell him, I, you need to do this, but there's no way you could do it. Jesus tells him, go do this, come follow me. Now, before you would understand it, you'd have to understand how every Middle Eastern city is set up. Every Middle Eastern city in Jesus's day was considered a great city or a not great city, considered a strong city or not a strong city, not by the commerce that went on inside the city, not by the height of the tallest buildings, not by the density of the population, but by one thing, the height and strength of its walls. Every city in Jesus's day had its walls. They were tall, thick, and they surrounded the entire perimeter of the city. And the whole purpose of the walls was to keep out enemies, to keep out danger, to keep out those they wanted to keep out even. And the only way to pass in and out of the city was to go through the gates. These gates were massive in size. I mean, where you could, you could march caravans of people in and out. They were deep in length, in fact, much of the dealings, much of the court procedures that would happen in those days, they happened. This will help you understand some of the Old Testament. They would happen in the gates. It was in these spaces that were the gates where all of this traction and all of this commerce and all of this activity would happen during the day. Because they ain't got no electricity. Come on, Ben Franklin ain't flow that kite yet. You know what I'm saying? So when it gets to night, it gets dark. 
And so these gates would be open from, from dawn to dusk, from sun up to sundown. But every city at night, in order to protect its residents, in order to keep out who it wanted to keep out, in order to make sure in the middle of the night they were not attacked by some enemy force trying to come and overwhelm their city, they would close and lock the gates. The gates that weren't, were once wide open, where you could easily march goods into the city on the largest caravan carrying vehicle you could find. Oh, yeah, they didn't roll into the city with goods strapped into the back of an 18-wheeler. No, 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 no. No, whenever merchants would bring goods in, they would, they would have the largest animal they knew of, camels. And they would have them so loaded down in width and in height that you could hardly tell it was a camel from the back. But the camel was strong and the camel was durable and the camel was able to carry this without knocking stuff over. And so you could walk straight into the city through the gates when the gates were open. But sometimes your camel has a flat tire. Sometimes the journey takes a little longer than you thought. Sometimes you're trying to make your way to Jerusalem, but the pit stop you took over in a neighboring city, you, you, the, the, the children just would not come out. They was asking for more candy and more drinks, and the next thing you know, it's night and the gates have shut. How do you get into the city if the gates are shut? Well, in Jerusalem, there, was, uh, there were these gates known as the Needle Gate. And in the Needle Gate, there was a um, after-hours entrance, if you will. It was the size of a person, but just a little smaller. You weren't going to drive your truck. You weren't going to push your caravan through. You weren't going to, if you were an enemy army, be able to just come on in with your, with your military power and weapons and stuff. You weren't going to be able to easily run through that gate. No, 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 no. It was very, very small. Smaller than the size of a person, but you could wedge your way through. It was a gate known as the eye of the needle. And so let's say by chance you were a merchant who had traveled a long way, your camels are loaded down with stuff. Uh, two and three times wider than the width of your camel, uh, stacked over even the head of the camel. You've got blankets and textiles, and you've got perfumes, and you've got grain, and you've got all of this that you're trying to get in. But now the gates are closed. Do you go through the trouble? of taking all of these goods, all of these things off of your camel in order to get that camel that may or may not fit, <laughs> certainly not easily, but to wedge and shove it through the eye of the needle and run the risk of somebody right outside your town, right outside the city coming by and taking your stuff. Do you run that risk or not? You know, our lives get loaded up and packed down, much like camels did in transporting things. There are all these things that we start to carry that we say really, really matter to us. It matters what I drive, and it matters where I live, and it matters that I look, and we start carrying all this baggage, and none of it is necessarily bad. The problem is we will never fit through that gate 
carrying all this stuff. But yet, sometimes the path that Jesus would call us to, sometimes the next step for us, sometimes the direction that Jesus would say, I want you to walk in this is for us to walk through the gate. Jesus says, come, follow me, but we can't fit through the gate. We have a problem. And if you're taking notes today, I'd love for you to write these few things down. The problem for you, the problem for me as Jesus followers, the problem in trying to take all of this that we carry and get through the eye of the to try to thread the needle is, well, it's not what we think. We said this on last week, but I have to say it again. The problem is not money. Sometimes people think the, the, the cares that we carry, the, the things that matter to us is all this monetary thing. It is stuff and it is the things that money can buy and it's our allegiance to it. No, no, no. The problem is not money. Please understand. Money is not inherently good or bad. Money is a tool. The problem is not money. Jesus' problem with this young man was not that he had money. The problem is trusting money. That's the problem. The problem is not that you have money. The problem is that money has you. The problem is not that money exists or there are things that abound. The problem is that you trust in those. You're more connected to those. You're unwilling to let go of those. So you trust in what you can carry. Even if it means that you can't go where Jesus is calling you to go. To recap, if we can, Jesus said it's impossible for someone who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said it's impossible, but listen, Jesus also told this man to become someone who doesn't trust in riches. So Jesus is not saying it's impossible to be rich and enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible to be someone who trusts in those riches and enter the kingdom of God. And that's why he called this man to lay aside this stuff that you trust in. I know you and come follow me. But Jesus also, we read it here in Luke 18, commended and promised his disciples based on their sacrifice and lack of trust in riches. Jesus said, I commend you, not because you didn't have stuff, but you didn't let your stuff have you. And some of you walked away from homes and some of you walked away from good paying jobs and some of you walked away from insurance and some of you walked away from friends and you walked away. Some of you even walked away from family to come and follow me. You didn't trust in that stuff. You didn't trust in the stuff that everybody else trusts in. And for that, I commend you. That's what Jesus said. See, Jesus is saying that as long as you trust in the strength of your riches, You'll never really trust in me. Which would lead us very practically in all of this wandering and understanding gates and camels and uh, things that we're carrying. It would lead us to a very significant, very practical, very personal question. How do you start not trusting in money? Because some of you, if you'd be honest, what's true of you is you trust in money. 
You ain't got much, but you trust in it. <laughs> like you are more concerned about your savings account, that little bit that's there, than you are anything else in life. You are more concerned about your direct deposit. You be refreshing your bank account every time you know you're about to get paid. Because you're like, it better hit when it's set. So how do you start not trusting in money? Here's how. According to Jesus, you thread the needle. You thread the needle. You lay off and set to the side, whatever you have to set to the side, so that you can take the step that Jesus tells you. That. How do you start not trusting in money? You thread the needle. Please hear me. Some people think that the only spiritual thing you can do with your money is give it. That's a lie. That's not true. Everything you do with your money is spiritual. Every spending decision you make is spiritual. And the reason many people can't give, don't give, choose not to give, feel worried about giving, isn't because they don't want to, but it's because of everything they're already doing with their money. It's not that I can't afford to give. It's that I can't afford to give because uh, I've been doing all this other stuff with my money that I thought wasn't spiritual. Baby, it's all spiritual. Rent is spiritual. Now, you need some place to sleep, some place to stay, some place to call home. Jesus called it a need. That's not just me and my 21st century mentality. Jesus said, you need this. But how much that costs connected to how much you make? That could be a spiritual decision. Car payments are spiritual. You thought you was just trying to get something nice to drive. No, some of you don't realize you have sabotaged your generosity by trying to roll a certain way. Clothing purchases are spiritual. Ain't nothing wrong with looking nice. Ain't nothing wrong with looking fresh. Baby, I, I care about how I look. I do, I do. I don't know if you've ever picked that up, but I care about how I look. But here's the thing. If what I wear causes me, even if it doesn't, what I wear is a spiritual decision. The amount of resources it takes it's a spiritual decision because it is either serving its purpose and doing it, or it could potentially be limiting me from doing what God has called me to do. Shopping is a spiritual decision. Dining is a spiritual decision. Vacationing is a spiritual decision. None of those things and none of these things are bad. It's all spiritual. See, I need to flip something some of you have heard before because you've heard a lot. Please write this down in your notes. Generosity is not a byproduct of our heart. It's a byproduct of our habits. Generosity is not about a heart thing. It is a habit thing. How do I know? Because I've sat with people before who, who, who invited me in and said, said hey, um, we want to or I want to be generous. I want to give. And then they'll share with me how they're already spending their money how they're already using the funds entrusted to them. And I've had more than a few occasions where I've looked people dead up in the eye 
who honestly said, man, we want it. We just don't know how we, man, we, we need some help with our budget. Do you think you could, hey, and I'd be happy to. And, and I did. And I've looked at him and said, well, well, right now you can't give. You can't be generous. Now, there's some stuff that can change and you could get there, but you can't right now. And the reason you can't is because everything you use your money is and you spending so much on your car or you're spending so much on where you stay or you've got you're saving so much for vacation. Or you're saving so much like you're doing all of these things and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But you cannot divorce the spirituality of all of those things from the spirituality that is to give because generosity is not a heart thing. It's a habit thing. Some people, maybe this is you, you've made a bunch of spiritual decisions that limit your ability to do that now. See, the truth is God doesn't give you money to give. God gives you money to steward. He doesn't give you resources to give. He gives you resources to steward. We want God to somehow give us something extra. Isn't that what some of us pray? God, if you just give me something extra, I promise I'll give it to you. Maybe. But probably not. Typically what happens when God gives us something extra, even if it was what we prayed for, is, is, is our, our, our taste goes up. <laughs> you know, we decide, oh, we, we, we can go ahead and upgrade the car now. Oh, you know, we go ahead and yeah, go, go ahead and get the lobster tonight. It don't matter. Like, and again, there's nothing wrong with those things. But you need to understand God does not give you resources for you to just be able to give. He gives you resources for you to be able to steward. And so how you decide to use all that he's given you, all that he's entrusted to you, through your job, through those connections, the talent, the strength, the energy, everything, how you choose to use and steward all of that is spiritual. How I use it has the power to free me from the lies that mammon, some of you will remember on last week, mammon tries to tell me, or it keeps me unable to go where Jesus calls me to go, to thread the needle. Because it's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. Some of us want, well, this, this waffly uh, area, this is my giving, and this over here is my fun money, and this over here, I'm saving them for a thing I want to do. And like, no, 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 it's all spiritual. And our ability to, to share, our ability to give, our ability to be generous comes from the fact that we recognize that it's all spiritual. So how do you change your perspective? How do you start not trusting in money? You thread the needle. Can I tell you what's even wilder about this young man in Mark, but also in Luke? Most people would have seen him and called him generous. What? Nah. This is the rich, stingy guy. That's the way I learned it when I was in vacation Bible school. Baby, you learned it wrong. He's not the rich, stingy guy. He makes a statement about himself that Jesus commends and only calls him to something greater. 
He said of himself, he followed the law. Whatever the law asked, this man did. Jesus listed a few things, and the man said, man, I've been doing all that since I was a kid. It would be impossible to follow the law in its entirety in Jesus' day, all 700 commands. It would be impossible to follow the law and not have your money and possessions interwoven into what went on there because there's a principle woven into the law known as the tithe. And the tithe, as it's presented and followed through the law, is even different than what the tithe is by definition and what the tithe is as, as people work to follow that today. Because as the law articulates, there were tithes, plural, on all sorts of stuff. Tithes on this and tithe on this and then bring a tithe to this festival and bring a tithe to this. There are scholars and historians who are much more knowledgeable about that and that world and how all that worked than I am. But I've read their work. And what they say is this, is they say that to tithe in following the Old Testament law, one would end up uh, giving, if you will, 20 to 30% of their income to God as a tithe. Now, there are layers to this because it was, yes, it was sort of like the religious spiritual worship side of things and also like a governmental like taking care of of, of that kind of so yeah there's a lot to unpack there and you ain't got time for that you probably don't even care about that but literally this man probably contributed probably returned 20 to 30 percent of his income but he still trusted in money yeah how though I mean, demands doing all of this. Well, biblically speaking, there's an understanding you need to get today. And again, I know today is very different. Today is not the hype me up. Woo, shout me down. I'm teaching you today. But can I teach you biblically what the tithe is so that I can help you understand why Jesus could look at this man and call him to something that this man did not have the generosity capability of doing because he actually didn't give. Tithing, biblically, isn't sacrifice, it's standard. Say what? Tithing isn't sacrifice, it's standard. Now I know to someone who has never tithed, when I say tithe, just for clarity again, a tithe means a tenth. It is the first 10% of all we produce, of all we make, of all we receive, that we return to God as an expression of worship. The, to someone who's never tithed, who would try to tithe, that sounds like sacrifice. To give God 10%, you messed up on that first word. You're not giving it. Tithing isn't sacrifice. It's standard. You are meeting the standard. And I get how if you've never tithed, if that is something you've never done, you've never experienced, never heard of, it can feel like, oh, but please understand, this is just the standard with God. See, the tithe existed before the law. Abraham tithed. This is before the law. It was, it was um, 
given articulation through the law. Moses commended the tithe. He said the purpose of tithing is to teach you to put God first in all of your life. That's the reason we're going to follow and do this. And for thousands of years, Jewish people follow this. Jesus commended the tithe and said you should tithe, but you should also not neglect these other things. It has stood the test of time. It's supported and encouraged throughout the New Testament. And today, some even practice it. I practice it. I return the first 10% of all my increase to God. If I sell something, I return the first 10%. If I get paid something, I return the first 10%. It is not sacrifice, biblically. It's a standing. Now, not everybody believes this. Not everybody believes what I'm telling you. And I don't mean believes as in they don't practice it, because there are people who will tell you they tithe, but they ain't never tithe a day in their life. That's a whole other thing. I'm talking about people who literally don't believe this is actually a biblical thing that we're supposed to follow anymore. They'll say stuff like, well, 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 really, the, the New Testament, it, it fulfilled all the law. Jesus fulfilled all the laws. So I ain't got to tithe anymore. Oh, okay, whatever. I do tithe. And I believe in it. And... One of the primary reasons I believe in it is, yes, because I believe it is commended through the scripture. And I believe that's what God's standard is. But also, I've known a lot of people in life. And I've known people who've taken that position and said, I don't believe it's a New Testament thing. We're under grace, not under the law. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know one of those people who have ever given more <laughs> than 10% of their income because they take on that mentality. But I know and have known so many people in life who um, believe that the tithe is the standard and they return to God. They don't call it sacrifice. They call it meeting God's standard. But then that unlocks generosity on the inside of them and they give even greater than that. The most generous people I know with their time, with their talent, with their treasure, with all their resources, quite honestly, are people who meet the standard. And they tithe first. Tithing isn't sacrifice. It's standing. So this man who tithed met the standard. He would not call himself someone who sacrificed. He was someone who enjoyed all the other stuff that he could hang on to. But don't miss it. He met the standard because tithing isn't sacrifice, it's standard. And tithing also, I've mentioned this a couple times, but you can go ahead and write this down. Tithing isn't giving, it's returning. To tithe isn't to give something. It is to return to God what is God's. The biblical preaching or biblical teaching on the principle of tithing is not one of giving, but of bringing back to God a portion of what is his. And if everything I have is God's, if that's the way I see it, if that's the way I believe it, if I believe every spending decision is spiritual, if I believe everything I have is a gift from God, then that makes sense. He gave me everything I have, life and breath and strength and resource. He gave it all to me. And so what's his standard? Oh, he wants me to return to him as an expression of worship that I believe that he is my source. He wants me to return to him the first 10% of all my increase. Okay. Because it's all his anyway. I had this friend years ago who was um, wanting to start a, a, a lawn care business. He was going to start cutting grass for people, right? And at the time, I had, um, I had this little, uh, little truck little Mazda B2500, right? Green, 
single cab, little bed, like, I mean, just the most basic truck you could ever have, but it was a truck. And my friend asked me if uh, he could borrow my truck to get his landscaping business started, because he drove a little a car at the time. And uh, he said, man, man, I'm gonna get it started as soon as I can, I'm gonna get a truck and then, and then, uh, and, and then I'll get you your truck back. I, I said, man, that's, that's fine, no worries. And so he went and did it and you know, got his little landscaping business going. He was able to buy his own truck and got his own truck. And, and, then, and then it became time for, for, for the truck to come back to me. Now, if in that moment that uh, he decided to come to my house and knock on the door, I said, hey, Michael. I said, yeah. He said, man, I got something for you. I said, you got something for me? What'd you get me? He said, man, come out here, come out here. I got you a green Mazda B2500, and here's the key. You, you didn't get me nothing, is what I would tell him. Why? Because I would take another green thing, the title, and I would show him my name is on the title. And I would show him, no, 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 you, you, you can't give to me what is mine. Like, that's impossible. You can return this thing back to me, which is what you did, because you borrowed it for four months to get your little lawn care business started. And I was happy to do that. But please don't call this giving. You are returning back to me what is mine. Tithing isn't giving. It's returning. It is returning to the source what the source has asked. God doesn't ask for it all. He says, I am your provider. Everything you have came from me. And all I ask back, I want you to return as an expression of worship, as a sign that you know who your source is. I want you to return to me the first 10% of all your increase, the tithe. Tithing isn't sacrifice state. Tithing isn't giving, it's returning. I know this hits like, oh my gosh, I feel so, listen, please, don't feel that. I, I'm trying to tell you what the scripture says and maybe to make sense to you as to what was even going on here in this story. Because again, we see this story so wrong. This gentleman was someone who returned to God what God asked, but he, uh, was unwilling to live generously. He was unwilling to thread the needle. He was unwilling to go anywhere God would ask him to go because what he wanted to do was waffle this thing off and meet the rules and then be able to do whatever he wanted with whatever he had left. Can I tell you something most preachers would never tell you? It's not like in your notes as a fill in the blank, but it could be. God doesn't want your tithe. He wants your trust. God don't want your tithe. That's the backwards teaching some people have received from Malachi. Everybody, when they like talk about tithe, let's talk about Malachi chapter three. God's problem with people not tithing, his, his condemnation on them as communicated through the prophet Malachi was that he's like, you have robbed me of the opportunity to bless you. I want to bless you. And you're not giving me the opportunity to do that because you won't bring the tithe back. You won't return to me what I asked you to return. I'll give you everything. 
God don't want your tithe. He wants your trust. But I need you to understand too, you can tithe and not trust this man. You can tithe and not trust, but you can't trust and not tithe. I know this is heavy. It's a lot. So, so, some people probably chose not to watch this sermon, chose not to come to church in person, chose to skip this podcast. Oh man, he talking about money. He talking about giving and tithing and returning and all that. I just, I can't, I can't. Okay. Well, let's end with a game then, okay? I'd like to end with a game. Is that all right? I know it's a bit heavy. Maybe we should play a game. Have you ever played Paper, Rock, Scissors? You know what I'm saying? You ever play Paper, Rock, Scissors? I love playing Paper, Rock, Scissors. It's fun unless people cheat. <laughs> you know, People be cheating this in Paper, Rock, Scissors. You got to clarify the rules up front. Are we going one, two, show? Or are we going one, two, three, show? And don't be at me. It, it, is, it is paper. It is rock. It is scissor. Ain't no, ain't no, ain't no bomb. Ain't no fighter jet. Like, no, no, no. It is paper. It is rock. It is... Scissor. It's fun. I like games. I'd like to end with a game today, though. And this game takes on the same mentality of paper, rock, scissor, where you have to understand who uh, defeats what and what defeats what so that ultimately you know whether or not what you've got can defeat what's coming against you. And I'd like to play a game of mammon giving trust. Mammon giving trust. Trust, for those of you that are new with us today or those of you who were not here for last week, you did not watch part one, did not listen to it, mammon is not money. It's a spirit on money, unsubmitted to God. And mammon tells you that it's your source. Mammon, giving, which is just, this is giving, and then trust. In your notes, would you write down how this game circulates? Because just like in paper, rock, scissor, you know that paper covers rock, rock breaks scissors, scissors cut paper, right? Well, in your notes, mammon breaks trust. Mammon breaks trust. The reason Jesus would ask this man to do this crazy thing, go sell everything you have, come follow me, is because he wanted him to trust him. But he could see mammon sitting on him. He knew that mammon had control of him. See, mammon tells you it can do for you what only God can do for you. It breaks trust. It gets you to trust in what it can give you into what you can count more than what you can see God doing. And what happens is you stop trusting God in your finances and you find that perspective permeates through all areas of your life. Mammon breaks trust, but not just trust financially. You stop trusting God with your relationships. Trust, stop trusting God with your purpose. Stop trusting God with all things that he says about you. Mammon breaks trust. Giving breaks mammon though. Right? Giving breaks mammon. See, when I give, it's me telling mammon, I can't afford not to give to God. When I give, it's me telling mammon that God is my supplier, that God is my source, that God is my security. It's not this stuff I see. It's not what you've been trying to tell me. When I give, it's me telling mammon those things. When I give, it's me telling mammon, you have no hold on me. Wherever he calls, I will go. Whatever he asks, I will give, because giving breaks mammon. But trust, write this down, breaks giving. What?
giving was like the pinnacle. No! Trust is. Trust breaks giving. Here's what's crazy. When you start to see all things the way I'm telling, the way the Bible shows us, everything we have is God's. That the tithe is me returning to God. The first 10% of all he brings to me as recognition that he's the one that brought it. It wasn't my work ethic. It wasn't my brilliance. It wasn't the fact I knew somebody who got me hooked up. No, he's my supplier. And that is me meeting the standard. And then I look for ways to give of my time, give more of my resources, because everything I have is God's. And wherever he asks me to go, whatever he asks me to do, I want to follow him more than I want anything. Trust breaks giving, because I know he's my source. And I know I'm just managing what he's put in my hand. And so whatever he asks, of me, I'll do. Whatever he calls me to, I will give. I will serve. I, I, I don't care because I want to follow him more than anything. And then it doesn't even look like giving anymore. It doesn't even feel like giving anymore. He wants me to sell all I have. Fine. He gave me what I have in the first place. He can replace it or not replace it. Don't matter to me. He knows what I need. He's going to take care of me. He, he asked me to, to trust him in spaces, to trust him with relationships, to, to trust him with things that I've never wanted. Okay, whatever. All I have, my breath. <sighs> thank you, God. My strength, thank you, God. Here's the thing today, and I'm closing. I'm not telling you this stuff. Today, well, honestly, is just a lot of teaching for you to try to get you in an understanding place as we move even into these upcoming weeks that are going to be celebratory. But um, I'm not telling you this. I hope you don't feel that way. That's why I've tried to not even be as preachy as I may normally be, just to talk. But I'm testifying to this. I'm testifying to this. Personally, in my house, we have peace in our finances. Not because we're wealthy. Man, my wife is an educator. I'm a pastor and a starter of other nonprofits. Like, what? Nah. <laughs> Not because we're rich. But, but because God has provided for us. And there's peace in our home. Peace in our finances. Because we live this way. We return to God the first 10% of all he asks, and we give to him beyond that through the local church. And so if he asks us for something in a season, if there's something that's needed, if there's a crisis, if there's a, and we can do something about it, we do it. And it doesn't even feel like giving. We ain't trying to get a plaque or a medal or a parade in our name. No, what are we talking about? All I have, he gave me. I'm just trying to use well what he put in my hand. Man, there's peace when you live your life that way. Peace when you live your life that way. Not trying to strive, not trying to get, not trying to worry, not trying to, but just peace. Because everything I have is a gift from him. So, mammon has no place 
in my house. I don't get worried. That don't mean that stuff doesn't get tight sometimes. That stuff doesn't get difficult sometimes. It does. Doesn't mean we don't use good uh, logic and reason. Absolutely, man. We use good wisdom. That's what the Bible is filled with concerning our money. The whole Proverbs. That's what our money class is all about, trying to bring wisdom to people. We started it last week. We'll continue it the whole month, bringing wisdom to people concerning their finances. Baby, mammon has no place in my house, no place in my life. It can't even mess with me because I know who my source is. And I know that if that's true in my life, it can be true in your life too. And that's what I want for you. But it comes as a byproduct of you actually trusting God. Not just saying, God, I trust you. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. But actually doing the things that Jesus has said. Actually demonstrating it. Actually returning to God. What is God's? What he asked, his standard. Making sure that the attachments and the affections and the securities of this world don't trip you up. Not that you can't have them, not that you can't enjoy them. No! But that you don't need them. Because he is all you need. And so today, I'm going to pray for you. And my prayer even for you today is that you'd begin to take the step to thread the needle. That rather than make another excuse as to why you can't, you take a step and begin to trust God like you never have before. And watch mammon, watch its weight break off of you, break off of your house, and experience freedom that can only be found in him. So I'm going to pray for you today. But as I pray, my heart also is that you would begin to get ready for next week. Next week is our vision offering. It's the beginning of that season. Everything given in our offering next week is going to go towards our vision offering projects. And then throughout the rest of this year, people who give in our vision offering fund will all be designated to that. In this moment, this marker may be the marker for you where you begin to trust God. You really begin to trust God by returning to him what he's asked of you so that you can give him what he ultimately wants. Which ain't a tie, but it's your whole trust. Father, I thank you today. I pray this word would sit in our hearts. Remind us every day with everything that we do that it's all spiritual. Everything we buy, it's all spiritual. Everything we give or withhold, it's all spiritual. And Father, I pray today you would change our hearts and shape us in such a way to where, um, God, you would use us. Help us to be people who trust you totally, fully, and completely for your glory and the good of those around us. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Everybody said, amen.